Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we witness the collapse of society in Mad Max to the Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick and I'm Julia and today we're talking about minute three which begins with stock footage montage of industry and it ends with familiar scenes from the first movie. We started to see a lot of stock footage of industry yesterday pumps and smokestacks and we start off today with stock footage of oil refineries. Great cities of pipe and steel sprouting up from the desert like the narrator says and seeing all of these structures it kind of reminded me of another project that we're involved in and this is a quick plug for the Die Hard Minute podcast which is a collaborative project of other movies by minute teams that we are a part of so you go start listening to the Die Hard Minute and every week is a new team and we're involved with it we got two weeks and I think there's like 19 other teams I don't think it's actually that many I think it might be closer to 13 other teams but I digress the important thing is that there are a lot of people working on it and I highly suggest going to listen to it because it's going to be a great experience to hear many different types of people but Wrapping it back to the minute at hand, the Nakatomi Corporation is a multinational conglomerate that would go about building giant refinery projects and offshore pumping platforms and things like that. Absolutely. Um, In the minutes that we covered of Die Hard, we get to see the executive offices where there are models of building projects that Takagi is obviously proud of. Mm Mm-hmm. And there is an oil refinery and there are uh, a uh, drilling platform. Things that he considers accomplishments. And it, I think it's a stark contrast to the, the vibe that we get in these clips. Mm-hmm. The vibe that we get is that society is so hungry for oil that we're just going at it fiercely yeah. to the point where it's gone and it dries up. And it does not take long for those refineries and factories to get to the point where they are gone because the very next thing we see after the stock footage of refineries is stock footage of explosions. As the narrator says, gone now swept away and we go from explosions to footage of soldiers storming a beach from amphibious crafts the narrator continues and says for reasons long forgotten two mighty warrior tribes went to war and touched off a blaze which engulfed them all so in road war terry hayes is talking about how he was working at a radio station around the time when the arab oil embargo was lifted and figured that if the world was going to be plunged into another global con if the world was going to be plunged into another global catastrophe, it would have to be over oil. And it was a conflict that he brought to George Miller, and the two agreed that it was a really good idea to use in their prologue here. I agree that it was a really good idea, that it's it's something that very strongly motivates our world even today, and that going awry would cause 
global catastrophe. But I'm kind of surprised that he took the point of view that if we were to have a global catastrophe, it would have to be oil. Because in the very early 80s, the the very late 70s, very early 80s, we were still in the middle of the Cold War. Right. So, and as I'm talking, I'm realizing this is not from an American perspective. This is from an Australian perspective. Mm -hmm. So maybe they felt differently about the Cold War. But from an American perspective, the the ultimate global catastrophe is nuclear war. Right. But from an Australian perspective, perhaps not so much. I don't know how the whole like the doomsday clock and like, fallout shelters and things like that. I don't know how those sort of things played in Australia. In America, it was a huge deal. Yeah. I like that you bring up the idea of nuclear catastrophe because in all of the shots that we see, this stock footage, it's conflict between warships, cannons firing, and things getting destroyed. And the idea of these two nameless warrior tribes going to war, it definitely doesn't sound exactly like, you know, the U.S. and Russia got into a hot war and started launching nukes. I mean, it's kind of insinuated because, like, they go to war and touch off a blaze which engulfed them all. It kind of sounds like the kind of thing where you would expect to see footage of, you know, mushroom clouds and nuclear missiles being fired. Yeah. But we don't actually get that. No. A lot of the footage is very old school. Oh, yeah. Like, if I'm not mistaken, the, there's a blip of soldiers running onto the beach from amphibious vehicles. Yep. That's like, is that from D-Day? No. Like, is it's that not from, from World War II? It's not from D-Day it's specifically. Newer than that. I think it's more Vietnam era style. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the fighting that's portrayed in these clips is is very old school, which I suppose could be because, you know, that's the footage that was available. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it's unreasonable to shoot your own stuff that's more, you know, futuristic or oil centric. Just use the stuff that's out there. But I don't know. It, to me, it just doesn't quite line up with the sort of conflict that I expect in my head. Right. It seems very old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Certainly does. So amidst all of this fighting, the narrator continues. The two mighty warrior tribes went to war, touched off a blaze which engulfed them all. Without fuel, they were nothing. They built a house of straw. The thundering machines sputtered and stopped. So whatever this nameless conflict is, it disrupted the flow of oil internationally so that oil could not go from the oil-rich countries to elsewhere in the world. And it sparked off a huge shortage. And it kind of makes sense that a global conflict, and this is going back to what we were talking about a little bit before, would be sparked off by resources instead of ideology. Because the First World War was a flurry of misunderstanding, sparking conflict, sparking people getting dragged in because of treaties. Mm -hmm. The Second World War was all about one force trying to dominate everybody else and the other force pushing back there. I feel like we're getting to the point where ideological conflict is not as prevalent that if we are going to get pushed to conflict it's going to be over scarcity that it's going to be about making sure that resources are secured and either hoarded or distributed yes 
um, there are theorists out there that attribute our latest, uh, America's latest wars from the Gulf War in the 90s onward, where we say that they're about ideology, but they're not really. They're really about resources. We're just not saying they're about resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really don't have an opinion either way. I, I don't follow war and politics that closely. But, you know, when we go to war in an oil-rich part of the country, it's really easy to interpret it that way. Right. That it is about oil and securing our supply. Yeah, and I don't necessarily want to point fingers, and I'm not saying that Terry Hayes and George Miller wanted to point fingers either, but when you have your main narrator talking about a faceless warrior tribe... You know, it kind of gives that air that the countries that sparked off this global catastrophe, well, they weren't Australia. Certainly not. I felt it was pretty clear that it was the United States and Russia. Yeah. Um, Either fighting a proxy war or just finally, you know, letting that Cold War boil over. Yes. Some interesting notes from the screenplay. There's some clips that are listed in the screenplay that are not in the actual movie Mm -hmm. that I think are interesting. Right about when it says, touched off a blaze which engulfed them all, for without fuel they were nothing. They had built a house of straw. So right in that area there were some images of a line of cars stretching for blocks until it finally reached a gas station. An attendant pulls down a sign which reads $7 a gallon, replaces it with another sign, authorized vehicles only. A group of angry motorists gather around, yelling and pushing. Oh, an attendant produces a gun, motioning them back. Mm. Now, I'm not mistaken, those images do not appear, correct? Nope. Okay. First of all, the $7 a gallon. Now, probably about 10 years ago now, gas got really, really expensive, and I can't really remember why. Yeah. And, you know, us in New England, really expensive meant $4 a gallon. Yeah. And $4 a gallon was enough to change my driving habits. Right. And I don't know what the national high was. It, I think it was in the $6 range. Yeah. So I find it very interesting that in 1981, a mind-blowing price for gas is only $7 a gallon. Yeah. Well, I like that you brought that up because in Road War... George Miller is talking about something that he saw during the oil shortage. The idea that after 10 days of only one gas station in the city having oil, or gasoline I should say, that it got to the point where someone in the crowd produced a gun and Mm -hmm. fired a warning shot into the air to, you know, discourage people from yelling and shouting and pushing and trying to get to the front of the line. And it made him think, you know, if this is what happens after 10 days of no fuel, Well, what happens after 10 years of no fuel? Like, what will people get to as far as desperation and the things that they're willing to do? That reminds me of something that I read online. Mm -hmm. I posed the question to Google, how much oil does the world have left? Which, in hindsight, is a dumb question. Um, I did not get a straight answer. I got many, many, many different answers. It is a highly charged subject on how much oil the world has left. It shows the importance and the disputes around oil nowadays just like back in the 80s. Yeah. One person's answer to the question how much we have left was we have plenty left because as it becomes more expensive to get oil out of the ground and we start paying 
six, seven, eight, nine dollars a gallon for gas, we will change our habits. We will start using and researching and implementing more alternative energies therefore bringing down our oil consumption till we don't consume it anymore. Mm -hmm. And whatever's left in the earth, we're just going to leave there. And I found that point of view very interesting. Almost uh, optimistic. Yes. Which very little of what I read about our oil supply was optimistic. Most of it was crazy psycho conspiracy theorists and pessimistic. Um, but that one kind of stuck with me as accurate. I think it's accurate. Yeah. 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 I think you find that the free market pushes a lot of people. Exactly. To act. The free market. There are people that will ideologically always love their large vehicles that are, you know, using, you know, two gallons a mile and whatnot. And they will say that they love those machines and will drive them until the day they die. But the. But. The very day that it becomes this, too expensive to right. use that machine, well, that's the they day only that have they are going so to have to money. abandon it. So. Yep. so in the context of the film, this global conflict causes the world's machines to just sputter and stop. And as we hear the word stopped, a light is shown on screen and it just goes out. So we are now dark. And I feel like this is the point in the prologue where these these countries have been fighting so hard for so long that they've just exhausted themselves. And so now where armed conflict has failed, now diplomacy has to try and pick up the pieces. However, we see a bunch of stock footage of government assemblies and men in suits in large rooms talking. And meanwhile, as they're inside, there are crowds of angry populace outside. And the talks break down. The narrator says they talked talked and talked but nothing could stem the avalanche and the crowds outside get violent and they overrun the police the narrator says their world crumbled the cities exploded a whirlwind of looting a firestorm of fear so it's interesting that they focus on the population centers are the first ones to fall apart because you have so many people stacked up on top of themselves it's like a powder keg that many people stacked up in close proximity, frustrated, angry, upset because of inaction at the highest echelon. Like, yeah, they're going to riot. They're going to get upset. They're going to tear everything down and burn whatever gets in their way to the ground. Makes me really glad we don't live in a city. Because that sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Like you... getting caught up in that mob mentality, mm -hmm. that sounds terrifying. Now, I was not necessarily old enough to really know what was going on when the L.A. riots happened. Neither was I. But the city of L.A. exploded and things went haywire and it took days for things to get under control. And if you imagine the L.A. riots, but on a global scale, where it's not just certain populations being tired of being mistreated, it's every population being frustrated because they are not being provided resources by the people that are supposed to be providing them resources. Either the governments are not doing their jobs of making it possible for companies to move things around, or the companies are not doing it, or any myriad of things. There is a laundry list of different situations where resources are not getting to people that could cause just a worldwide firestorm, like the narrator says, of looting and destruction as the world crumbles around. We have built a global economy, and that's a good thing. Bringing the entire world together to share our goods, it's good for everybody. 
Right. But in this case, it may have played a significant part of the crumbling of society mm-hmm. when when that global trade was interrupted, not only by, I mean, just oil alone is a huge global trade. So when that's gone, it's a huge dent uh, in the economy of the entire world. But then everything that that touches also suffers. So the movement of food, the mm-hmm. movement of clothing, the movement mm-hmm. of cars, yep. and, well, the movement of everything. Um, you see commercials on TV about, like, the trucking industry, and most of the nation's goods are still moved by truck. And imagine that just shut down. Yeah. Uh, there was, a few years ago, there was, oh, there was a strike in a port in, not in Europe, but I think in Northern Africa, and, and everything sat in warehouses, and sat in containers, and food went, went bad just sitting on the docks, Mm -hmm. because it wasn't getting moved to where it needed to go. And, I mean, that was, it was kind of scary, but it's really easy to imagine everything just stops moving. Yeah. And especially us in a modern society, where are we going to get our food from? Exactly. When you think about the way that food is moved around, food is trucked out to grocery stores from farms. A lot of farms, at least in America, are in the center of the country. Yep. And the food is being moved outward. Well, if the trucking industry is disrupted, well, how much food does each supermarket have before it's completely out? And even if you do eat local... Okay, so we have... I can think off the top of my head two farms that have farmer's markets that we can go to and buy fresh produce, but they're both like 10 miles away. If yep. we don't have a car, how are we going to get there? Yeah. These are the situations that the people in this prologue are facing. Yeah. So the narrator says men begin to feed on men. So that looting, yeah, it's people going in and taking resources from other people. It's not possible to hunker down and stay in one place because there are mo- because there are mobs of hungry people rushing through the cities trying to get their hands on any scrap of food, water, clothing that they can get their hands on because the means of production have been cut off from the people that would use that product. Yeah. As we're exploring what uh, an oil-less world would be like, I can't remember, was it today? I think it was actually yesterday where I questioned if an oil shortage would be the worst thing to happen as opposed to nuclear war. Yes, nuclear war would be horrific, but talking about how the entire world would literally starve to death. Yeah. That is that is heavy and very dramatic and it touches us individually. Like we wouldn't if there was nuclear war, we wouldn't be affected in the first strike where we live. Mm-hmm. I think we would be relatively lucky. Um maybe in a second round, but I think we would survive the first round. But in an economy where food can't move around, we're just as susceptible as everybody else in the entire world. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of hedging your bets either way, nuclear war versus global resource shortage because if you got global resource shortage then it's a slower death if you've got nuclear war yeah a lot of people are gonna die a lot faster and then you've got the creeping effects of radiation poisoning and fallout and whatnot that completely ravages the globe i mean but a a lot more people are gonna die immediately exactly you're gonna have a lot fewer people suffering the effects of 
hunger and homelessness and starvation and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So going back to the movie specifically, a lot of the stock footage we see in this part where they're talking about men feeding on men, it's a lot of large groups clashing, you know, people running in masses in the street and burning things down. But there's one particular shot in the packet of stock footage that stood out to me. And it's of a man wearing a tan uniform shooting at a man who's wearing black that's running away from the man in tan and he fires the gun and the man in black just crumples to the ground. And I don't know where this stock footage came from. I think I said that a couple of times, but I'm pretty sure we just watched someone die for real. I agree. It must be from war and therefore legal. I don't think they would film an actual murder. I don't I don't know. We see portrayal of murder so much in movies and on TV, that when we actually see it Mm -hmm. and we know that it's real, it's jarring. The thing that makes me think that it's real is that when the man is shot, he crumples like a rag doll. He's not It doesn't look like he's acting. Throwing his hands and head back in the air and flailing as he falls forward onto the ground. No, there's a gunshot and then he just crumples. Mm -hmm. Drops like a sack of potatoes. And that's incredibly disturbing. Yeah. And I think it fits well in this prologue, the idea that the the world literally burned itself alive because of all of these people that want ravenously these resources that they cannot get their hands on. And the last and the last line we get of this minute is that out on the roads, it was a white line nightmare. And I think nightmare is a good way to describe it. Absolutely. I mean, we're going to get into more specifically the idea of how it was on the roads tomorrow when we pick up where we left off but yeah we start getting into the more mad max era specifically yeah. of events we're, we're at that point where we're going to be abandoning stock footage and getting into something that's a bit more recognizable yes in fact we get a couple of shots in the last four seconds of this minute the shot of a motorcycle cresting a ridge and a quick shot of a very familiar black car with a very familiar looking yellow car behind it. And it's more specifically, I think, the Knight Rider's car and an MFP officer right behind him that we got from the first opening chase of Mad Max. And after dwelling so much on how the world fell apart, it's kind of comforting to see a familiar image. Yeah, even if that image is still chaotic and post-apocalyptic, at least it's familiar. Exactly, exactly. At least we know what to expect from it. All these images of war, they're very unsettling. Absolutely. And perhaps even more so because we see, we can we can apply these things to our own future. Yeah. Like, you know, our world is still obsessed with oil and fossil fuels and we're I think we're getting better about alternative fuels, but if oil all of a sudden disappeared tomorrow, we would still be in the same position as these people were in. Mm-hmm. This chaotic future. Yeah, it's it's really scary to think of. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think at the root of the Mad Max movies, yes, there are horrific situations and it's not necessarily the kind of environment that you would want to raise a family in. It's not Mayberry or anything like that. But at the end of the day, I feel like there is a element of hope to the Mad Max series. Absolutely. That that despite the world eating itself alive, that there are still people that survive and in some instances even thrive to a certain extent. The idea that despite what happens to the world, that humanity will soldier on. Yes. And I take great comfort in that. Yeah, 
through Mad Max and as we go through this movie, we see we get to see lots of instances of humanity very similar to our own. We get to see family units. We get to see people who care about each other and who take care of each other. And it's it's really nice to see that those things don't require society to continue on. The screenplay does have more about the downfall and that process. It's got some scenes um, that bring in the corporate aspect. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, we talked a little bit about alternative energies. They do bring up the subject of of solar energy, but it seems to be another case of too little too late. Like they didn't develop the technology enough that it could replace oil in a time frame that they needed. Really? Um, And then after that, it goes into, you know, the machine grinding to a halt and we go on from there. Okay. And it does show, wow, there's actually a lot more. Oh yeah? Yeah, there's a lot more. So in the actual movie, when they start with the violence, the riots, it's mostly masses of people. Yeah. In the screenplay, it's mostly more on an individual level. Okay. Uh, you know, a, a young man runs down the street, shots are fired, the young man falls dead. Oh, crushing the meat and eggs he has been clutching to his chest. Oh. So definitely the food issue is there. It seems like originally it was more on an individual level. Mm-hmm. Than on than on a mass level. I think what they probably thought is easier to use stock stock footage. I think we yes, mentioned that before. Than to shoot a scene specifically for the movie. Yeah. I think it also adds a level of detachment for the people that are watching because if you're watching one person suffering, it's a lot harder to handle than if you watch a group of people rioting and looting. Yes. Like. It, Trying to digest, you know, a person being gunned down in the street for meat and eggs is, you know, pretty horrific. Yes. And I think it reiterates that this was something that happened to people en masse. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, this isn't a story about a man who stole meat and eggs to survive and was gunned down because of it. This is a story of everybody trying to survive. Real quick, I don't like your insinuation that he stole it. He could have purchased it. But I do appreciate that if you focus on an individual... And you're too small in your scope, then people will think, oh, maybe that's just one city. Maybe that's just one region. But when right. you show the large groups, you'd be like, no, 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 this, this is, is global. Everybody. There's a reason that there's not that many people left when we finally get fired up. Yes. In this minute. So good to know. I think tomorrow we're going to pick up with, like I said, footage from the first movie. We're going to be pushing through more of this prologue stuff. We're not quite out of the woods just yet. We are going to get to fun stuff eventually and not be quite so doom and gloom. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron. Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share on social media to help others find the show. Thank you for joining us for minute number three of the road warrior we will see you tomorrow